0: For English Puritans in 1631, staying in England seemed to be a better option than emigrating. They'd heard about the cold, disease, and hunger in America, and things in the old world were looking pretty good. The conflict with the king remained steady, and at the very least, things were no worse, but there was also great news from the continent where Protestants had started to win the Thirty Years' War as the Swedish king Gustavus Adolphus entered the fray. They had good reason to be optimistic. So, for the people committed to building a godly model society in the New World, 1631 and 1632 wouldn't be characterized by the type of mass emigration witnessed the year before. They'd be years of building, planning, and organizing. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. Everyone who had invested 50 pounds got 200 acres of land, and everyone else who had paid their own way got 50. Grain was expensive in England, so they bought corn from Virginia instead. Winthrop and Dudley started building their permanent houses in Boston and Newtown, respectively, and they started fortifying the towns. That was the easy part. The hard part would be fighting competing claims and turning the company's charter into the basis for an autonomous commonwealth. Ferdinando Gorges had been the strongest advocate for New England colonization since the first days of Jamestown. He'd been one of the original Plymouth Company leaders, and he'd been the man who transformed the Plymouth Company into the Council for New England. In 1622, the council had given his son Robert a patent for the colony around the northern part of Massachusetts Bay, his son's colony had failed, but when the English went to war with France in sixteen twenty seven in the La Rochelle incident, Gorges was forced to give up his council, his interest in the council for New England, because he was busy helping with the war effort. So, when Warwick and others granted the land of the Massachusetts Bay to New England to the New England Company the predecessor to the Massachusetts Bay Company, Gorges wasn't there to stop the repatenting of the land that he had already laid claim to. There were even colonists who had been living in America for years sent by Gorges to establish his claim to the region. One of these was Thomas Morton, and another was a man named Christopher Gardner, and a whole group of them led by a man named Captain Neal, were living at a place called Pascataqua. To make matters worse, Gorges was an Anglican and an ardent royalist. He had given the pilgrims a patent for land, land in New England, but the Puritans were another matter. The Massachusetts Bay Company had a patent, though, granted by the Council for New England and a royal charter, too. So at this point, Gorges had two options. If he wanted to reclaim his land, he needed to either get the Massachusetts Bay Charter annulled, or have the area declared a crown colony. Either way worked for him. Over winter, the settlers had found and arrested two of Gorges's agents, Morton and Gardner and they were preparing to send them back to England on the first ship that arrived that spring, along with the third prisoner who had nothing at all to do with gorges. Morton had either been living in exile in the wilderness or under arrest since the destruction of Marymount, and he had been watching the goings-on of Endicott Salem with increasing disgust. Before they could send Gardner back to England, though, he escaped and went to live in the wilderness. He'd been living in New England since long before the Endicott moved to Salem, along with some servants and family. One of his supposed family members was a pretty young woman, but the Plymouth settlers had always suspected that she was a concubine. Nonetheless, they had allowed him to stay even when they'd arrested Morton. He wasn't going to give guns to the Indians or threaten their trade. The Puritans, however, ordered Gardner be returned to England. It turned out he was a Catholic, a knight of the sepulcher, and a descendant of Catholic bishops, and there was some evidence that he had two wives back in England, though he claimed to be divorced. After fleeing Boston, Gardner ended up in Poconoket territory, and Bradford paid the Poconokets to arrest him, but emphasized that they must not, under any circumstances, kill him. And when they beat Gardner too seriously in the course of his arrest, Bradford reprimanded the Poconokets and ordered and ordered Plymouth's doctor to treat his wounds before returning him to Boston. When Gardner had fled, he left his companions in Boston, and the pretty young woman named Mary Grove soon married a Maine fisherman and trader. Gardner accompanied the two to Maine, but soon returned to England anyway. The third prisoner was a man named Philip Ratcliffe, and he wasn't a Gorges agent. In fact, he was an agent of Matthew Craddock, who had specifically given up his governorship to stay behind in England and fight Gorges's rival, Patent. He had sent Ratcliffe to take care of the land in the colony to keep him informed and to hopefully guide the colonists. Ratcliffe was being exiled for blasphemy. Ratcliffe hadn't been accepted into the Salem church when he arrived. The members of the church decided that he was an Anglican at heart and that he didn't agree with enough Puritan or Separatist ideology to be admitted. This may have been true. Salem was extremely strict, but but it could also have been a political choice. Regardless, some settlers had then borrowed money from Ratcliffe, but when he tried to collect the debt, instead of the money, they had sent him a letter telling him that he shouldn't mind these transitory things that perish with the body, and that he should instead work on his soul. Ratcliffe was beyond furious. When he got the letter, he launched into a rant, declaring, Are these your members? If they be all like these, I believe the devil was the settler settler of this church. In response, Endicott charged him with blasphemy and had him whipped, fined 40 pounds, that's the average yearly wage for a landowner of the time, had his ears cut off, and had him banished. In England, these three people would form the core of Support for Gorges's attempt to oppose the Massachusetts Bay Charter. A few colonists also voluntarily left on that first spring ship called the Lion, including Richard Saltonstall, who would never return to America. Two of his sons had died that winter, and New England just wasn't for him. He stayed connected to and active in the colony's affairs, though, and he went on to help organize the Connecticut Colony and ultimately became a prominent parliamentarian during and after the English Civil Wars. The funny thing is that as Massachusetts worked to expel three accused troublemakers back to England, they were inviting the man who would soon become perhaps the most famous troublemaker in the colony's history. Few people came to England in 1631, but Roger Williams was never one to follow the crowds. Born in London, he'd had a spiritual conversion that his father disapproved of, He had studied at Cambridge, but embraced a radical, separatist, Puritan stance which kept him from getting a job as a minister. As soon as Williams arrived in New England, he rejected a position preaching in Boston, a job most people would kill for, saying he considered the church dishonest in many ways. He didn't want to lead people in worship who refused to renounce the Anglican church, and in fact he didn't even want to be part of such a church, so he moved to Salem, though he did strike up a friendship with John Winthrop. Then he went on to say that the charter of the colony was illegitimate because the crown had no right to the land outside of England, and he suggested that the charter be sent back to the king and the land be bought from the Native Americans instead. Then he suggested that no one should be punished for holding religious beliefs different from those in the majority. That's a whole lot of inconvenient or just plain unacceptable ideas, and by summer, Williams would be living in Plymouth. Williams may have been in the top percentile of political and religious agitators in New England, but the colonists were far from united in their ideas of how best to run the colony. In transitioning from corporation to commonwealth, the colony's leadership was going to have to violate its charter, and it ran the risk of angering colonists with its new policies. The first charter violation dealt with voting requirements. The previous fall, they'd admitted 107 people as free men, or full members of the colony, with voting rights. In May of 1631, though, Winthrop and others had started to worry that allowing everyone to become a free man could change the goals and directions of the colony. They had a very specific idea of what they wanted the colony to look like, but they also wanted a democratic system as part of that vision. So to achieve both goals simultaneously, they had to control the voter base. So they decided that no one would be admitted as a freeman unless he belonged to a church. This made ministers a first line of defense to ensure the political purity of the colony. No one protested the fact that this violated the charter, though, so the changes easily went into effect. In June, the Massachusetts Sachem, chicka visited Winthrop to offer peace between the two peoples. The English had been worried about Indian attacks, though in reality there wasn't much that the devastated locals could do to the English, who were now stronger, wealthier, and more numerous than ever. Still, the meeting assuaged their fears. A couple weeks later, though, Gorge, the Gorges issue resurfaced. Captain Neal brought a shallop from Pascataqua carrying a packet of letters addressed to Thomas Morton and Christopher Gardner. Winthrop decided to open them and learned that they had come from Gorges, who claimed most of the bay and was trying to recover the land. Pascataqua's current residents were hostile to Puritan political and religious ideas, so even though the town was outside of the Bay Company's charter, Winthrop sent a trusted associate named Captain Thomas Wiggin to defend Puritan interests there and investigate the possibility of setting up a Puritan colony. Wiggin and Neal fought about Gorges's claims, and Wigan soon decided to return to America and get a patent for his own town in the area, thus ensuring it fell under Puritan control. A few months later, when Wiggins sent Winthrop a letter asking the governor to avenge the deaths of two former Bay Colony servants who had been killed by the Indians, Winthrop refused, saying he didn't have the boats fit for such an expedition, and that he was much more worried about Captain Neal and the threat from London. And indeed, Gorges was sending more settlers to enforce his claim to the area. In July, a group of settlers called the Husbandman Company arrived in Sagadahoc, Maine, which they planned to rename Ligonia. These were mostly farmers, as as Gorgias envisioned a farming and fishing-based colony. And they were also members of a religious sect called the Familists, an Anabaptist sect originating in Munster, which denied the existence of the Holy Trinity and said that God didn't directly influence events in this world. They soon abandoned their settlement, though, and moved to Boston. From there, they went to Watertown, which was already a more farming-oriented plantation than the others. Watertown itself soon became the center of controversy. They had a separatist elder, Richard Brown, and Brown said something which seemed to defend Catholicism. It seemed, he said, that there must be some truth in the Catholic Church if they didn't force people to rebaptize themselves as Protestants. The congregation was shocked and contacted Winthrop, who replied that they should seriously consider whether or not Brown was fit to continue as an elder. The congregation split, with half supporting Brown and half opposing him. Winthrop, Dudley, and some of the assistants went to the town to smooth the tensions, and they they succeeded in achieving a compromise, but the result was only temporary. The next year, the colony's general court voted to raise a levy to fund a protective fence around Cambridge, the town formerly known as Newtown, and Waterton owed eight pounds, A number of residents said that the company wasn't a government, and that the charter didn't give the Bay Company the authority to levy taxes, and that therefore the colony didn't have the right to do so. So the town refused to pay. Winthrop responded that the presence of elected officials meant that it was a government, and in fact one in the nature of a parliament. He then said that the colony was a commonwealth, not a corporation, and this was an extremely politically charged word in the 17th century, and Puritans strongly supported the idea of a commonwealth, so the dissenters were more than convinced. They apologized for their misunderstanding. Opposition ended, the colony soon created its own public stock to help meet expenses in the future. Plus, each of the eight settlements would appoint two people to advise Winthrop and the assistants about introducing a permanent system of taxation. This wasn't the end of conflicts over the colony pushing beyond the purview of its charter, though. When people complained, they simply began explaining that this was a representative government— and that the colonists could replace their elected magistrates if they weren't happy with the way the government was run. In reality, this wasn't exactly true, because the churches had to approve each new voter, and voters had to sign an oath of allegiance to the Massachusetts government. Ministers weren't allowed to run for public office, and people often cite this when arguing that the Massachusetts Bay Colony enforced a separation of church and state, and that may be the case, but it's also important to note that ministers had more control over the civil government than pretty much anyone else did. The other requirement to be a freeman was signing the Oath of a Freeman, also written in 1632, though adapted from previous covenants which gave explicit consent to the authority of the Massachusetts civil government and pledged loyalty to that government. The end result is that if you didn't like the government changes that were happening and you either weren't accepted to the church or didn't pledge your loyalty to the Bay Bay Colony government, you really didn't have a say. Almost all families had at least one accepted church members, but in many cases this was the woman who already couldn't vote. In some towns, fewer than half the men were accepted freemen, while in others the vast majority were. This led to a fair amount of political tension, especially in Watertown, and Winthrop visited the town again in July this time ending the conflict in a heavier-handed way, and this time it worked. Fortunately for the Puritans, though, they weren't the only people who had been dealing with internal struggles. As they worked to solidify peace within Aragansids, they heard news that the members of an eastern tribe called the Tarotines had attacked the leaders of a town called Agawam. They'd killed seven men, and wounded the two sachems, or Sagamores, named John and James, and they had taken a bunch of hostages. The English argued that the Sagamores had killed some of the Tarotines' families, and that therefore the attack was warranted. The Agawam, whose population had been devastated by disease and who couldn't afford a serious tribal conflict, allowed a group of Puritans to move to Agawam, Thus strengthening their own position, and within a year the English had turned it into the new settlement of Ipswich. When Winthrop heard that the French were planning to start setting up towns in the area, he sent his own son to lead the settlers and defend the town's status as a Puritan possession. The French had bought a Scottish plantation near Cape Sables, a colony organized by Cardinal Richelieu himself. Richelieu was also compiling companies of priests and Jesuits to send to the colony, so the Puritans started to rebuild their abandoned forts. And the French weren't the only hostile force out there. In November... Gorges's Captain Neal sent a letter saying that some of the English in Pascataqua had turned to piracy and asking to join forces with the Puritans to fight a common threat. Winthrop called the council and they agreed. They were by no means allies. Back in London, Craddock, Salton, Stahl, and Humphrey were fighting Morton, Gardner, and a very upset Ratcliffe. But... Neither Winthrop nor Neal could afford a pirate presence in New England. And speaking of London, the next year brought terrible news from the Puritan perspective. The Catholics had started to win the Thirty Years' War after the death of the Protestant champion, the Swedish king Gustavus Adolphus, and... King Charles had named William Laud as Archbishop of Canterbury. For New England, this would mean a continual flood of migrants which lasted a decade. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter, and you can find those links at the website AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to first-hand accounts and things. See you next week.